Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Most people don't know that for thousands of years, marijuana was the go-to choice of medicine for treating a myriad of health conditions from sour stomach to pain to inflammation to nervous tension, seizures, and schizophrenia. When Congress finally banned medical use of marijuana for good, they did so without even consulting the American Medical Association. They left a generation of doctors who had depended upon uh, marijuana for their patients. They were all scratching their heads. Well, nearly 80 years and several generations after the infamous Reefer Madness campaign set the stage for nationwide prohibition, cannabis is re-emerging from the shadows with renewed acceptance and potential to redefine modern medicine for the next generation. However, people who were raised on the propaganda spawned by Reefer Madness and subsequent war on drugs have been slow to embrace cannabis as a viable alternative to the deadly pharmaceuticals that came to replace it. Finding anyone old enough to remember using medicinal cannabis before Prohibition began would be a tall order. Ironically, a few daily doses of cannabis concentrate might actually help them to remember and effectively render an assortment of prescription pills for memory loss and other age-related ailments obsolete. So if we want to find peer-reviewed clinical studies to validate what I just said, that would be a tall order. In all likelihood, there aren't any. Well, yet. However, personal experience and some very compelling anecdotal evidence has me convinced that cannabis is a far safer alternative to some of the most dangerous pharmaceuticals. Benzodiazepines like Ativan are too commonly prescribed to treat elderly patients suffering with short-term memory loss, hallucinations, tremors, and combative behavior. Those are terrible side effects that are caused by the medicine itself. It's a vicious cycle that really does nothing to improve quality of life. Even though marijuana is making a comeback and a new generation of doctors are pushing for education and legislation, finding any elder care facilities or any medical institutions for that matter is next to impossible if you want them to treat with cannabis, even in states where it's legal. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest. But first, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute update. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thank you, Snowden. 
I believe the discovery of the endocannabinoid system and understanding its operation and utility could turn out to be one of the most important medical revelations of modern-day medicine. So I'm very happy to know that you'll be talking about that today. It amazes me that most nursing colleges and medical schools still offer little to no coursework and baseline education on the subject. The endocannabinoid system, or ECS, is connected throughout our nervous system and is involved in a variety of physiological processes, including appetite, pain sensation, mood, memory, immune system function, among many others. In essence, it functions similarly to many of the other biochemical systems that are present in our body, with certain molecules binding to receptors, which in turn causes a physiological response. Recent studies have shown that cannabinoid deficiency is a common denominator among people who are diagnosed with neurological diseases, such as Parkinson's. Scientists are also now learning that people with autoimmune conditions like Crohn's disease can oftentimes respond very well to cannabis therapy. We don't yet have all the answers about how cannabis unlocks the ECS or why medical marijuana is key to doing so, but we can be certain that the subject should be taken seriously at both the academic and clinical levels. For now, it's up to doctors, nurses, and other healthcare providers to educate themselves about the endocannabinoid system. I would personally like to invite patients and medical practitioners to join me at the World Medical Cannabis Conference and Expo, which will be held in Pittsburgh, PA, on April 21st and 22nd, during which time attendees can participate in a medical cannabis education course and have the opportunity to earn continuing medical education credit. For more information about this, please visit CompassionateCertificationCenters.com. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you so much, Dr. Donner. Let's get started. Dr. Naz Dadal is an internal medicine specialist practicing in Phoenix, Arizona. Since graduating from medical school in 2005, he's amassed over 12 years of diverse experience and is affiliated with a number of hospitals in the Phoenix area. He also cooperates with other doctors and physicians in medical groups. As an advocate for medical use of cannabis, he's found a way to care for patients outside of the institutional setting. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad you could join us. Thank you for having me with you, Snowden. You know, um, I've mentioned on this show before some of the challenges that I've had with my own father. Mm-hmm. And I had him, uh, he was actually uh, in an acute care facility in California. And he was being treated with benzodiazepines and antipsychotics that were actually making him a complete zombie. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I introduced uh, cannabis, actually just hemp oil at that point, it's like all of, all of his problems started to just go away. And he started to improve so vastly. So I decided to bring him here. And... I was really delighted to find you because you have a very interesting practice outside of the institutional setting, mm-hmm. which is sort of a concierge practice. <clears throat> and I think that there's a huge need for patients that are in group home settings to have access to cannabis. Tell me about how you go about um, introducing that to some of the patients that you deal with. Sure. Uh, just a little background as to how I got started in this. You know, I um, I worked as an intensive care physician for a couple of years, and one of the locations that I was working in was in Hawaii, West uh, Oahu, where I worked as an intensivist slash hospitalist. And during that time there, I came across um, patients who were, I guess you could say institutionalized, but they were 
um, hooked up on ventilators and uh, really had no quality of life. And uh, my focus over uh, numerous patients and family experiences have shifted me to start thinking more along the lines of what's the best interest of the patient and their family. And um, that's where I got introduced to palliative care. I um, pursued the path of palliative care, which led me to get board certified in hospice and palliative care along with internal medicine. And what I started doing was working with patients uh, through various hospice and palliative care organizations. And what we found is when patients get um, diagnosed or have a terminal illness with a life expectancy of six months or less, usually they're put into a hospice bucket. And once they get signed on to hospice, all of their medications uh, more or less get taken away or removed. And they would say that it was for patients' comfort. And what we found is that uh, by taking away their medication, by identifying someone with six months or less to live, um, you don't really improve the quality of life for them, so to speak. And in a way, you cut down on the amount of unnecessary testing and things along those lines, but patients still had symptoms. And the symptoms is what was the big issue, not so much the disease process anymore. Once a person or a family member identify a disease process and they say, look, this is not going to go away. My cancer is not going to be cured. Um, you know, my neurological disorder is not going to go away. It's only going to get worse. Once they accepted that, then there was really not much left other than emotional support and, you know, psychosocial support. But again, the symptoms of nausea, vomiting, anxiety, sleeplessness, anorexia, all these symptoms are still there. And when you take away a lot of the medication that was initially maybe helping, uh, some of those medications also may have caused a lot of those symptoms and may still be causing those symptoms. But the problem is they get taken away. And then what happens is they get focused um, on pain medication, anti-anxiety medication, which you had mentioned, the benzodiazepines, the narcotics, the opiates. Those have a horrible uh, side effect profile. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about an elderly person or a person that has a chronic, long-standing terminal illness, to introduce, you know, opiate-induced uh, constipation, for example, it's horrible. It literally turns their intestines into cement. Um, you know, uh, anti-anxiety medication for a person that has, you know, neurological disorders, it may not be the best option. And what we found uh, was that. Um, patients were using cannabis um, on their own merit. And I've heard numerous patients, families asking, can we get certified for this? Um, how do we get them certified? And at the time, there was no option. They either had to go to uh, a physician that specialized in that or, or was advertising that. Or um, Fast forward now to, to here, uh, moving to Phoenix. Similar situation, I'm involved in, in palliative care and hospice care. I'm involved with patients that have terminal illnesses. And the same question pops up. You know, how do we get patients certified? Do you certify? And what we found was the only place that they can go were these, um, you know, these facilities or these offices that uh, would advertise online or, you know, on billboards. And uh, when you're talking about an 80 or a 90-year-old person with terminal cancer, they didn't feel comfortable going and sitting in these places. So 
I felt that that was a problem. Patients did not have access to an alternative form of symptom management, which is what we're really dealing with here. And they didn't have a physician or someone who felt comfortable navigating this situation, this whole cannabis situation, because there's a huge stigma, as you know, Mm -hmm. with physicians uh, not wanting to get involved with that stuff, quote unquote. Um, And they just, there's a lack of understanding of the whole premise behind it. And I think you had mentioned reefer madness, and Mm -hmm. I remember watching clips of that on the internet and and understanding what happened during this whole prohibition period. Um, But the bottom line is patients were still left out, hung uh, high and dry, Mm -hmm. no pun intended. Um, So what I found was they really needed someone to help advocate for them. And after understanding the side effect profiles of the medications that were used in this classification of patients, I researched how does how can a person become certified? What, do, what does a physician need to do? So I went on to the Arizona State Department of Health website, and I you know, did all the read-up that I could. I took a course that they offered on um, certifying for medical marijuana. And once I realized that all it takes is a physical examination, an appropriate diagnosis, that's what it takes to get certified. But from there, where do they go? So... Um, what I began doing was uh, part of my personal concierge uh, medical practice where I would offer medical services to patients uh, outside of you know, a hospital setting. I found that these patients, again, didn't have anyone to advocate for them or to help get them the resources that they needed. And so by utilizing a palliative care uh, program, uh, I've been doing home visits and uh, certifying patients that have chronic long-standing illnesses that are approved by Arizona State Department of Health and helping them get their uh, medical cannabis cards uh, in a home setting. Mm -hmm. So um, sort of along the lines of hospice, uh, palliative care, concierge medicine, all wrapped up into one. Um, So I actually go and I see the patients in their home. I evaluate them. I discuss their options. We get a game plan, and once they understand, which they usually understand beforehand what they're getting themselves into, I go ahead and I certify them. And then where do they go from there? Because so many people in that age group um, really haven't taken the time to research cannabis or find out what they can do. And I get questions a lot from people who say, well, you know, I know it's going to help me, but what compound do, do I take? What, yeah. you know, how, how can a patient um, find out what is right for them? There's really just not much literature on this. Yeah, so that's, that's a big problem. Uh, you know, another issue that sort of is a roadblock along those lines is that, uh, you know, in the state here to, to be, I guess, qualified or eligible to walk into a dispensary, you need to be certified. Mm-hmm. I personally am not certified. So I cannot walk into a dispensary and talk with their uh, bud tenders and ask them about the strains that they have and what symptoms that uh, they're going to best address and manage. So I'm sort of, as a physician, left out in the, in the cold, in, in, the, in the dark, in terms of what's going on locally. However, there is some research that is being done, and I can't really say it's uh, approved by any you know governing body, but there is um, anecdotal research, I guess you would say, yeah. as to which strains uh, can 
aid in what symptoms? Um, you know, one of the more... Yeah, see, what I'm finding is that um, a lot of this is word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Like, speaking with other patients, finding out from... Uh, there are, there's a big network of nurses. Um, in Arizona, there seems to be a big network of nurses, parents, um, physicians, and people who are just really interested in this, and they're all discussing amongst one another, you know, what people should do. But outside of that, like you said, they're really just... Um, there's nothing written and nothing that's approved on a government level. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you this. Um, because you're a physician, is that the reason that you are not certified? I'm sure that has a huge factor to play in this. Um, and there's yeah. a reason I was asking that, because a lot of doctors that I've spoken to um, in the last, you know, especially in the last year, their biggest concern is losing their license to prescribe drugs, which mm-hmm. is issued from the DEA. Correct. And and technically it's illegal to prescribe marijuana. And Correct. so many doctors are saying, you know, I really just don't even want to discuss this with my patients because I'm so afraid. What do you tell Correct. them? Well, here's the thing. I don't prescribe marijuana. Right, you can't. We can't. So what I do is I, I evaluate a patient, and based on the criteria that has been set forth by the state, the state has decided or has... Uh, a list has of qualifying conditions. Listed, a list of qualifying conditions, exactly, that, that satisfy their, meet, their, their needs. What I do is by certifying a patient, I am evaluating them and making sure that they fall in with the state's criteria, and then I certify and say yes. This person does fall under the criteria, and they should not have an issue being granted their card. So I don't prescribe marijuana. I don't, um, I can, I, let's just be clear, I certify that they are appropriate candidates to get the card. Now, where do they go from there is that big black hole that we're talking about. It's, right. it's that, it's these, um, these hurdles that are put up, these roadblocks. So I do not have access to um you know, products or data or um, strains or, or, or growers that are, you know, uh, listed or registered or recognized by the state that I can talk to and say, listen, I have, you know, uh, a team of patients that could benefit from, you know, certain strains. Um, what do you have available? What can we offer them? You know, so it, it gets really complicated in a way um, and I can see how lots of physicians who don't understand what their expectations are and what their roles are in the current situation are afraid to get involved yeah. because it could be murky. Um, but again, as long as the understanding is that we're not prescribing, we don't have any mar- uh, medical marijuana on our persons or we don't even see it or come close to it, um, Certifying a patient as appropriate candidate for a, a, a cannabis card is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, just another service that patients need. Yeah, of course, and it's a it's a very important service. It really is. I think and, so. And and you know, aside from just the obvious getting them certified so that they can start a cannabis regimen, one of the things that I think is so incredibly important about what you do is that it gives the patients also a sense of confidence that it's that it's right to do and 
absolutely helps to take away some of that stigma because there is actually a medical doctor on board. Mm -hmm. And um, and it also helps their family members realize that this is an important thing for them to do and that it's it's going to help them. How often do you see patients who are in the hospice setting who begin um, a cannabis regimen who find that it's not only just relieving some of their comfort issues, but it's also helping to... Um, eradicate the disease that put them in hospice to begin with. So that's a, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty tough question. You know, um, the majority of the patients that I do see in hospice, for the most part, have a cancer diagnosis. And it's very difficult to um, see if, you know, any of the cannabis uh, patients have seen any benefit from it um, because it's still far and few between. I, I don't have that much um, exposure to patients that are using cannabis and also, um, you know, with, with the hospice diagnosis of, of cancer, let's just say. Um, but I can tell you that uh, the patients that I have certified that have been using cannabis have had nothing but amazing results with the symptoms that they were very concerned about. And a lot of those symptoms are not just disease-specific. They're, they're pretty generalized symptoms. Um, and I really think that that's the point that I'm, I'm more of an advocate for is the symptom management. Uh, as a palliative care specialist, um, you know, patients are sort of in the limbo of, do I want to transition to hospice? Do I want to continue curative treatment, curative management? And they're still under the umbrella of their prescribing physician or their specialist. So they have symptoms that need to be addressed, but they still want to continue with treatment, so they fall in a gray area. And for those patients that are on uh, medical cannabis, they're able to continue with their treatments. So a lot of them still continue with chemo. They still continue with radiation treatments. But what I found with them is that they've cut down the amount of narcotics that they've been taking, the amount of antidepressants that they've been taking, the amount of um, anti-anxiety medication mm -hmm. that they've been taking. And, you know, I remember the first patient that I've certified, and I usually do follow-up uh, visits or communications with families about a month into it and then two months into it. And what I've, what I've found and what really made me feel that what we're doing is right for these patients is um, this... Uh, elderly woman that had metastatic breast cancer. And the family was really upset by the fact that she um, was no longer doing the things that she liked to do. For example, she was the type of woman that would dress up all the time, makeup done, hair done. Uh, the daughter would say she would dress to the nines or to the tees or, or however she put it. Um, this woman went through uh, surgery, she had her breasts removed, she had radiation therapy, she had chemotherapy, she went through two different rounds, and uh, it got to her. She, she was not eating, she wasn't sleeping, she had anxiety, she didn't know if today was her last day or not. Um, she was just fed up with the treatment, and the treatment is what she believed was causing her symptoms. And her symptoms were just that, nausea, no appetite, uh, vomiting, and you know sleeplessness. 
So the family was really, really concerned, and they wanted some help. And she was on narcotics for bone pain. She was on anti-anxiety medication. She was on all types of meds that were also worsening her symptoms. Make a long story short, after she had gotten certified, uh, they made their way to a dispensary. They spoke to one of the persons behind the that made recommendations for them in terms of what strains to use, and they were they had a cocktail of CBD oil and um, I believe some tinctures. They might have even used edibles. Um, and what really turned it around for me was when she said, you know, after we used, I think it was an edible the first, the first time, they said that they all, the family and the patient, all gathered in the living room. They were uh, talking old stories about, you know, the past, and they were laughing, and they were telling jokes, and they were all catching up, and they had uh, finger foods everywhere, so she was actually eating, and, um, you know, she was in a really good mood is the way that the daughter uh, described it to me. And she said, and at the end of the night, um, mom went in and she went to sleep. And she was comfortable. And she didn't have to take all of the medications that she needed just to go to sleep. And then she woke up in the morning and she remembered everything that they talked about. And she said it was just a beautiful, magical night for them, relatively speaking. Now, to you or I or anyone else, sit around at home and talk story and you know eat you know uh, jalapeno poppers or whatever it is and go to bed and wake up the next morning. We take that for granted. Right. But for somebody who's gone through the traumatic experience and is waking up every day surprised that they made it, you know, and questioning, am I going to get to sleep tonight in my own bed? You know, that was a huge deal for them. And the only thing the daughter can do was to thank me for certifying them and bringing them into this, you know, or, or giving them this alternative option. Right. And, and that really rang tight with me. I, I really saw that, wow, there is a need out there. And it may not be for everyone. And like you said, there is a stigma that's out there. But I think once people look past that and see what the real benefits are, I mean, there's no harm, I think. There's no worse side effects than some of the medications that we're prescribing. So as far as I'm concerned, if a patient wants to try something alternative to help them be more comfortable and to get over their symptoms... I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually, I've actually spoken to a lot of people who are stage four cancer survivors Mm -hmm. who um, just did some uh, very high dose uh, radical switch from the chemo and radiation and, and the heavy pharmaceuticals to a, a completely cannabis regimen who are still here to talk about it, even though they had a window that was given to them. Sure. Uh, it, during which they were going to still be alive and, mm-hmm. you know, far exceeding that window. And, you know, I've actually read some, uh, some studies that were done on animals um, that are published by the National Institute of Health. And um, you, can, you can find them on the PubMeds, which I refer to all the time. I'm always mm-hmm. on that website. But, you know, they're finding that that like even with like geoblastoma and um, certain types of cancers actually respond really well to that sort of thing. So, you know, what's really interesting with the people who are so afraid to move into a cannabis regimen to alleviate the symptoms that they're getting from the treatment of cancer, 
you know, I, I, I almost feel like I want to go and just hug them and then shake them and say, hey, look, you know, you never know. This could actually help you beyond just sure. alleviating, your, alleviating your symptoms. Sure. So, I mean, for me to, to sit and say that, you know, do I think, you know, cannabis is going to cure diseases like cancer or any neurological disorder or, or anything, I, I can't say that I think it's going to cure it. Uh, you know, without being, being a physician and, and going through all these years of studies and whatnot, I need to have some sort of evidence. And I think that's something yeah, that's beyond scares, anecdotal evidence. Right, exactly, right. right. But the fact that our hands are tied, we're not... We're, we don't have the opportunity to study, you know, the, the findings or the effects of cannabis on these disease processes the same way that we're able to study, you know, chemotherapy and its effects on, you know, cancer sort of puts it in a position, puts me in a position where I can't speak about that, yeah. you know, in a, in an educated, informed uh, manner. Mm-hmm. You know, what I can say is that symptomatically speaking, there is benefit from my personal experience as a physician and having experience with patients that have suffered through these symptoms, you know, that I can tell you that there is, uh, that there is room for it, that there is, mm-hmm. it's, something's there. How much of it is psychological? How much of it is actually physical? You know, I can't tell you, not personally, but again, the numerous patients that I've had that have had these issues, they swear by it. And the family members that have to live with them and see them in their worst, and then to turn around and say, wow, this is a 180. This has revolutionized our lifestyle. You know, our family is now able to function without having to revolve around, you know, a pill. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, with that being said, you know, I think that there is definitely room for it. I think that you know, it's uh, cannabis is is very misunderstood and mislabeled, and I think that there's I have my personal views and opinions as to why, you know, but um, that's any not going to change like, anything. Any, any you'd like to share? Well, let's just say Big Brother's always watching, and you know, Big Brother's always listening, and I think Big Brother's concerned about the bottom dollar, and I really think that there's some financial, um, you know red tape or not to mention political well financial political you know uh, there's a lot into play and something that grows from the earth and is you know available to people uh without a you know without it's it's not synthetic like the medications that we have you know and then you talk about side effect profiles. You know, when you look at the side effect profiles of narcotics, you know, as an intensive care physician, I've treated thousands of people who overdose on narcotics. And not just narcotics, which now it's, it's a huge epidemic countrywide, Addiction. probably worldwide, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the oxys and the dilaudids and the morphines. You know, it, it goes deeper than that. You know, just your... your Tylenol PM. We have people, young people, old people that take uh, non-prescription medications and they overdose on it. Do you know in my 10 years of uh, clinical practice how many people that I've treated that have overdosed on marijuana? None. Yep. None. None. You have to smoke or consume or ingest somewhere along the lines of 
you know, 700 to 1,200 pounds just to consume, to have toxic levels in you that would be considered, you know, overdose to the point where, you know, you're considering life or death. Right. You know, for someone to take, you know, a handful of, you know, narcotics or antidepressants or sleeping pills, uh, and if they have, you know, renal failure or liver failure, you know, you're talking, that's a toxic dose. Right. And you can buy that from any CVS or Walgreens. Yeah. Right? We, we actually did a show recently um, with... Alcohol? Doc, with, yeah, alcohol too, with uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Korn. And, and when he was the first one who mentioned to me that um, he has seen patients overdose on Tylenol. I, in fact, I put that in the title of the, of yeah. the episode. I, I'm astonished. You know, it's... You never hear about these things, you know, from just out there. In the, and I'm sure it happens a lot more often than anyone would think. Tylenol overdoses? Yeah. Yeah, it happens a lot. It happens a lot. Tylenol overdoses. And now some of it may be intentional. Um, and I think the majority of them are intentional overdoses. Um, but then again, you also have a person that, you know, might be suffering from some pain or something Anxiety. that they consider minor and they take a couple of Tylenols and they say, hey, you know what, if two is recommended, maybe four is better, maybe six is better, mm-hmm. maybe it'll help get rid of this faster. Faster. <laughs> and, you know, after a day, hey, it's not working, let's go another couple of days and let's take some more. You know, th- there's a lot of that out there. And then we had touched alcohol. Alcohol uh, has side effects that are horrible, you know, and there was even um, a study that had seen a while back that said that even if aspirin were to try to be put through the FDA for approval, the side effect profile may have prevented it from passing. Mm-hmm. So the medication that we prescribe for people or that we recommend to take daily, right, for, for preventative medicine, for, pre- for preventative care, may not have made it through the FDA right. had it gone through today, let's right. say. So, or since the FDA was founded. Correct. Because you know, yeah. so, aspirin's been around since long before... Sure. Yeah. I mean, we prescribe a medication called Coumadin, which is uh, which was actually developed as a rat poison. And we prescribe it for people that need to be anticoagulated. So we're trying to thin their blood to prevent blood clots by using what was initially used as a rat poison. That's okay, because at the end of the day, you're preventing somebody from getting a stroke. You're preventing somebody from getting a blood clot. So you're saving a life. You're sa- you're, you're doing something good. By using something that someone might look at you and say, are you crazy? You're giving me rat poison, you know? But every ends has a means, right? So we're trying to prevent blood clots. Here, you're trying to prevent somebody from having, you know, uh, weight loss. You're trying to prevent somebody from, you know, staying up all night and, and, you know, having anxiety about their disease process. And all it takes is maybe, you know, a tincture, uh, you know, some oil, some drops under their tongue, and the side effects that would normally come, including, but not limited to, you know, constipation, anxiety, you know, uh, drowsiness. A lot of these medications are so sedating that a person can't function. Right. But people that have used CBD oils or tinctures, they have not complained to me about being too overly sedated. Or sedated at all. Or sedated at all. Right. Or, or not being able to function properly. Mm-hmm. So that is a concern. You know, it's a concern of mine. Um, 
There was uh, another story I was going to tell you uh, about a patient uh, encounter. Um, I don't know if we have the time for it. Yes. But um, yeah, this yeah. was actually um, a 90-plus-year-old woman who also diagnosed with cancer, had symptoms that was far beyond what could be managed by her daughter. And um, she asked me if I would help her convince her mom that uh, medical cannabis is okay. And I asked her, well, what, why does she think that it's not okay? And she told me that she was a teacher, and she was a teacher probably for about maybe 30 or 40 years. And as a teacher, she had a student who once came into her classroom and uh, reportedly was under the influence of, of, of marijuana. Um, and she said that he was acting a fool. And, um, she, and since then, she said that um, she had never been a fan of it. She'd heard lots of stories. And it reminded me of the reefer madness yeah, uh, videos. Because at the of, age of ninety, she would have been it was alive during that, that time. era. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, you know the paranoia and the people flying out the windows and stuff like that. So she had been completely anti-pot from the time she pointed out a student. A student came in her classroom, and that was it. She was like, "No way, no can do." It's like the devil's brew, right? Right. So coming to talk to her about what her concerns are, she really didn't have any knowledge or any experience, personal or, or otherwise, with it, other than the fact that one of her students may or may not have been under the influence, but had uh, acted out weirdly in her class and from what she's heard. And after talking to her and, and understanding that, we've gone over some of the uh, articles that are available online. We've PubMedded and, and explained to her that you know, there are people that are using it for symptom management. And her daughter said, you know, Mom, if I had the chance or if I had the, the option, I would try it. This is the daughter speaking to the mom. So this woman said, okay, I'll try it. For her daughter, she said she'd try it. And a couple of weeks after she got certified, uh, they went and they got some tincture. They got some oils. Um, my follow-up phone call with them, similar story as the other patients. She's now out of her bathrobe. She's got her wig on that she hasn't been wearing for so long. Um, she lost her hair, uh, so she, she would wear a wig, and, and she hadn't been wearing it since uh, probably months or so. Now she's back to uh, wig, uh, makeup. Uh, they go out to lunch together. They, they, they call it an early night, she says, but she says we still get out there and we still hit the scene is what she said. I don't know what kind of scene that they're hitting. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is, we got this 90-year-old woman who had probably, I'm going to say, over 60, 70, maybe 80 years of negative imagery of, of this product. And when it came down to it, she was open-minded enough to try it, and she found that it totally just turned her life around. Mm -hmm. from somebody thinking that she had nothing left, nothing to look forward to, is now making dinner plans and lunch dates with her friends, you know? Um, so I don't know if you want to call her a little old stoner or what, but she's happy. She's not hurting anyone. Um, she's within the, you know, the, the law. And who am I to take that away from her? Mm -hmm. You know, and if I can help 
bring a little bit of happiness into somebody's gloom life by certifying that they are eligible to use medical cannabis? Why the hell not? Yeah. See, it, it really, that stigma really is one of the biggest barriers to this care. And, yeah. you know, and not just in patients, but in the medical community and in our political environment, yeah. too. And it's it's it, very sad. And, and I guarantee you, any of the politicians that are anti, uh, you know, cannabis for medical use, I guarantee you, if any one of them ever was in a position where they needed some additional symptom management and the only thing that was available or, or working for them was cannabis, I really have a hard time believing that they would say, no, I don't want it. Yeah. Get it away from me. Yeah, and I, I just wonder, you know, when you were saying that you've got your theories, <laughs> I really do wonder, you know, if you follow the dollars that go into campaigns. Mm-hmm. I I imagine that, you know, there there are a lot of lobbies that are against this, you know, and we've, sure. we've talked about this ad nauseum on this show, you know, from sure. lumber and fuel to, you know, pharmaceuticals and um, and food products and agriculture, big ag, chemical companies. I mean, there are a lot of very influential oh, lobbies yeah. that put a lot of dollars into campaigns. Sure. Because there really is no logical reason why... Um, even for adult use, there's no logical reason why cannabis or marijuana should be illegal, and especially hemp. I mean, it it, it just goes beyond me, you know, yeah. once I started learning about it. But, yeah. So, um, what would be your message to other doctors about this? Uh, doctors who would be opposed to even um, exploring uh, the option of recommending cannabis to their patients? What would you tell them? Again, you're not prescribing cannabis to patients. You, you don't know, you know what, what the dosages are or things along those lines. You know, it, it's a practice all in itself. And from what I understand, that there are people out there that are really working on trying to standardize the mm-hmm. treatment of certain diseases, right? But from a symptom management perspective, my message would be to really understand what is your roadblock? What is your personal roadblock to recommending something like this for patients uh, and their symptoms? If it's fear of you know, losing your license or something along, the, uh, something along those lines, that's understandable. You know, no one wants to put their livelihood in jeopardy. Um, but again, by understanding the law and understanding that what you're doing by certifying or even recommending to them that they consider alternative uh, means of symptom management that you are within the law. You're not doing anything illegal. You're not doing anything that's immoral, although morality and the use of cannabis is also questionable, right, to each their own. Um, I would say that they should probably consider it. I would say that they should probably look into some of the research that's already been done. You know, if, they, if there's any questions as to what they're doing um, and, and their fear, really it's their own personal fears. But um, I would tell them to learn more about it and, and to look around and ask. You know, there are people that are wholeheartedly believing in this, and there's a reason for that. You know, some people can sit and recommend, you know, medications based on, what studies show, and 
you know, what, what studies might show may or may not work for all patients. We have patients that, you know, one particular regimen may not work for them. So there's alternatives. If plan A doesn't work, you go to plan B and plan C. You know, I think that um, medical cannabis should definitely be in someone's arsenal of, of resources for patients. And if it's not your top choice, that's understandable. I mean, that's what you went to school and you've practiced. But you shouldn't be so um, exclusive, especially if patients are interested. Because patients now are interested. Mm -hmm. They are researching. They are looking online. They are asking. A majority of my, my consults come from patients and their families who are requesting it. I personally don't go out and start telling people, hey, you should be on medical cannabis. <laughs> right. I don't do that. Yeah. You know, because that's not, that's not my primary focus. My primary focus is their health and their well-being. So I'm focusing on their disease process. When they turn around and they say, hey, doc, what do you think about, you know, medical marijuana or medical cannabis? Do you think that that would work for me? And I say, well, what are you trying to, what are you trying to do? If you're trying to cure cancer, it might not work for you, you know? But if you're trying to manage some of your symptoms, well, now we can talk. Now I can sit down and have a conversation with you because you're talking symptoms with me. Mm -hmm. I can talk symptoms with you. I can talk management with you. Yeah, I can prescribe narcotics all day. But is that really going to help? It might temporarily help, but there's a whole other slew of side effects that you're going to be dealing with. If you're ready to deal with that, sure, I prescribe narcotics all day. But if you ask me about cannabis, I would also answer you the same way. If you want to try it, let's try it. And if you're happy with it, keep doing it. If you're not happy with it, stop. Mm -hmm. There are other options out there. But either way, it's not going to do you any harm. I don't think it's going to do you any harm than it would, you know, taking uh, narcotics. You know, I also recommend activity. Every patient that I encounter... I recommend to them uh, increasing their activity. We think of ways to get their bodies moving. So it's not about just, you know, medications and drugs and narcotics and cannabis. You know, it, it's a whole, it's a whole, you know, uh, patients, as far as I'm concerned, should be the center of their management, right? The management should revolve around the patients. It's not me giving you what I think you should do. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you what, yeah, I think you should do. Right. But with your permission, with you being the center of the, if you're telling me, look, I don't want to take this. I don't want to do that. What am I going to do? Am I going to twist your arm and tell you, no, no, do you have to have the surgery? You have to do this. And, and there are people who do that. You know, there are physicians who impose their beliefs on patients, just mm -hmm. like there are patient, uh, physicians who believe that cannabis is wrong and they should not be doing this. And it's, you know, it's illegal. Yeah. But. We need to keep in mind patients are the center here. Patients are the ones that we're treating. Their families are a huge part of that. And if they want to try something, if it's not going to hurt them, I say do it. I say try it. You have really nothing to lose. And, you know, if it helps you feel a little bit better than where you were without hurting anyone, I, I don't see a reason why you can't. Have you found any patients that are in an institutional setting where they're not going to be able to have anyone treat them or, or to deliver medicine to them or whatever, what do you tell them? Like, have you ever encountered people who are in an institutional setting who sure. really could benefit from cannabis? Sure. I actually had a, a patient call me 
uh, one time for his certification, and he was staying at a group home. And uh, when I called to schedule an appointment with him, uh, one of the group home uh, caregivers answered, and um, she flipped out when she heard that he was interested in, in doing that. Now, I understand that there's federal regulations that uh, provide funding for a lot of these institutions, and for someone who's dependent on that funding to, um, to manage the care of patients, I can understand the fear of not wanting to lose that. Mm-hmm. No one wants to have you know, big brother looking over. So is that really the biggest issue, do you think, in some of these? And just not just group homes, but like in, in elder care homes, facilities. care facilities. I think a lot of it is um, there's that fear, that stigma, that, you know, we can't have this here. Um, and then there's also, I mean, personal, uh, the owners of the facilities might not want that in there. Um, and then I can also understand that if, you know, if we're talking about something that's not, like tincture or uh, oil form. Right, smoking and right. contaminating so the whole house. Nobody wants anyone smoking cigarettes, let alone, you know, marijuana in their uh, nursing home or in right. their group home. You know, so that's totally understandable, and there's no qualms with that. Uh, as far as things like edibles or uh, tinctures or oils, I don't know if the fear is maybe somebody else getting their hands on it, but then again, wouldn't you have the same precautions with somebody's narcotics? Right. So I, I can't, I, I don't have personal uh, experience with why per se a person or a facility or an institution would not allow it. Uh, and I'm sure someone that is an administrator in, in those uh, areas can shed some more light on it. But if I had to assume, I'm going to assume that it's probably more so the, the federal uh, regulations, the fear of you know, doing something wrong, um, there, there seems to be a, a lot of potential uh, roadblocks, but I can't pinpoint one over another. Yeah, I, I've always um, sort of wished that there were organizations out there, and hmm, maybe we have to start one, um, where, where a, a group of um, either physicians and nurses or, or just nurses or just physicians or a group of ordinary citizens with maybe one doctor or one nurse visiting administrators of some of these groups, because group homes have much different regulations than, say, hospitals and, you know, full-skilled nursing facilities. Sure. And it, it seems to me like there's just such a need for people to go one-on-one and have a discussion with these people with someone of great credibility, such as yourself, you know, a doctor or, or a nurse practitioner or someone at that level of medical science sure. training to go in and explain to people what the pros and cons are of, of medical marijuana use and, you know, how it could benefit their, their residents and that sort of thing. I mean, I've, I, and with this experience with my father, you know, I've just seen the holes in, in um, they're black holes, really, you know, of... Yeah what's available to patients and what's not. And it, it's tragic almost, but I don't know. It's, but it, I'm really interested because you do see, see people on a concierge basis, and it is so different. So I don't know. Any final thoughts on 
um, on what we think that is most important for people to know from a concierge medical practitioner's point of view? So from a concierge practitioner's point of view, again, focusing on the patient, I, I'm not dependent on insurance. I don't need to file anything with the insurance companies. So with that being said, I'm not pressed for time. Um, I'm not trying to see a patient and get him out within 15 minutes so I can see the next patient uh, to compensate for the you know, reimbursement reductions and things along those lines. I do not have overhead that I have to concern myself with where if I don't see 30 or 40 patients in a day, I have to close my doors. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so with that being said, from a concierge perspective, I have the flexibility and the luxury of spending time with my patients. I can sit with them in the comfort of their own home, in their office. A lot of my concierge practices are um, executives, Mm -hmm. and they don't have the time on a Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, to sit in a doctor's office and wait to get their regular prescriptions refilled because um, the, the practice says that you have to be seen for refills. So for that, or f- for just that concept of having the time to spend with them, I can dig deeper and go deeper into treatment plans, options. Um, you know, a lot of our discussions aren't just about the disease process. It's about wholeness, wellness, their entire life. You know, I feel like, um, like a therapist sometimes. You know, I go in to talk about, you know, just a, a cold or, or, or an allergy, which is usually mistaken for, you know, oh my God, doc, I'm dying. You know, meanwhile, the allergy season, you know. But we get into conversations, we talk about family, we talk about business, we talk about their practices, we talk about their overall well, uh, wellness and their overall health. And we get into things like exercise and we talk about the uh, regimens and, you know, alternative, you know, time is, is of essence for everyone. And we see that now. Um, so having that time from a concierge perspective really is priceless. And for some well, and people, also the discretion when it comes to medical marijuana, too, sure. and to have that legitimacy of a medical doctor. Sure. Yeah. So I do have the luxury of being able to discuss it with them freely and not have to worry about the facility, you know, getting upset or there is not that much regulation, basically. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm getting the signal from our producer, Wendy, that it is time for us to wrap it up. So, so sad. I know. Thank you so much for being here. Thank really. you. My I, pleasure. I appreciate it. And I'd like to follow up with you more about this um, sure. later on. And I'm sure no doubt I'll see you soon. <laughs> So anyway, here we go. Another show comes to a close way too soon. But I'd personally like to thank Dr. Nazar Dadal for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work he's doing, uh, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click broadcast to find today's episode. And um, I will put information about uh, Dr. Naz Dadal up on that website. So, also, many thanks to our producer, Wendy West, and the team at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine on a regular basis. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. He'll be back again next week. Also, gratitude to our sponsors, HempMeds.com and Zephyr Labs. We would not be here without you. 
And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is over.